Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And I think it's looking at, like, where in my life am I avoiding the uncomfortable things? Now, that could be physical, that could be exercise, that could be, like oh my God, I can't stand being hungry for two seconds. That could be, I haven't been in silence for five years because it makes me uncomfortable. Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Michael Easter, so excited to have you on the podcast. I was recently introduced to your book, The Comfort Crisis, and intrigued by it because I feel like uh, you put into words, I want to say what I have been feeling, but I think what a lot of people have been feeling. But it's hard to label because, like, can you know that you're too comfortable? Like, that seems like a strange even entrance into inquiry. So, uh, yeah, excited to chat with you about it today. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you uh, enjoyed the book. And I've actually gotten that a lot. It's people will read the book and they will say, I'd kind of had these different disparate ideas in my brain and the book sort of put them all into something that I could understand. Some of it, they said, like, I knew it was kind of there. I didn't know exactly what it is. And other stuff, they were like, oh, I hadn't thought of that thing, but it helped me understand myself a little bit. So, cool. Well, what made you want to disrupt your comfort? Like, you know, you went through all this stuff to write the book, but like your intention leading up to even going on the wild adventures that you've gone on, like, were you like, I'm too, I'm too comfortable? So what it was, and I read about this in the book, yeah. is my mother has been sober for 
38 years, 39 years. I'm 36 years old, so she got sober two years before I was born. Uh, I don't know my dad because he has, I assume, continued to carry on with drinking and drugs and that sort of stuff. So I don't have good genes for drinking, yeah, but yeah. I drink. I don't think I do either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't drink either. So, but I drank anyways, and I am not a good candidate for drinking when I was in my late 20s. My life looked pretty good on paper. Yeah. But internally, I was a mess. And, you know, the good sign that you have a drinking problem is that all of your problems are caused by your drinking. (laughs) (laughs) And that was totally me. And I tried to stop drinking a bunch of different times, different ways. And finally, I just got to a point where I could very clearly see if you continue to do this thing that is comfortable and easy in the short term, but that leads to long-term problems, you're probably going to die early. Or I could choose to really take this harder path that I knew was not going to be easy, that I knew was going to be absolute hell in the short term, but it might improve my life in the long run. And I was to get sober. And so I got sober and I was absolutely right. Hardest thing I've ever done, totally uncomfortable. But on the other side of that, like my life got so much better, like in every single way. At the time, I was also working at Men's Health Magazine, yeah, an editor there. And I noticed that literally everything we wrote about in that magazine you had to go through discomfort to get a benefit. So if you want to if you want to improve your fitness and in turn your health, you're probably going to have to exercise. Exercise is uncomfortable. Weight loss, right? You're going to be hungry. That's uncomfortable. Mental health, you might have to ask yourself some tough questions. Yeah. That's uncomfortable in the short term, but you get a long-term benefit. So once I sort of made that observation, I just started kind of thinking about uh, comfort and how we're surrounded in quite a bit of comfort today. And I had different experiences on reporting trips where I was kind of, you know, removed from society out in the wild for a while. And I would always get home from those and feel a lot better. And I could also very clearly see like, wow, it's so much more comfortable day to day for the average person than it ever has been. Yeah. And like, that's great. But if sometimes going through short-term discomfort gives you this long-term benefit, like, is there a point where you hit a tipping point of having too much comfort all the time? And so I just started going down that rabbit hole, basically. And in the book, I argue that a lot of our most pressing problems, whether it's physical health problems, mental health problems, even just like feeling a lack of meaning, like, Mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do with my life? Stem from the fact that we now live in a world that is rather comfortable for most people most of the time. So most people live at 72 degrees. We spend 93% of our time indoors. That's a crazy stat. I think the average person gets 4,000 steps a day. That is 14 times less than our ancestors got. Wait, 14 times? 14 times less. Yeah, 14 times less. That's a lot. Yeah. I don't even have to be good at math. I know it's a pretty big number. (laughs) Well, I'm terrible at math because I'm a a writer. But And on and on and on. You You can start to look at a lot of the problems that society is facing and They're tied to the fact that we evolved to do the next most easy, most comfortable thing. That kept us alive in the past when our environments were uncomfortable, when we were hunter-gatherers. But now you take those drives and you put them in an environment that allows us to be comfortable all the time, that is comfortable, and that can start to backfire. So anthropologists would call this an evolutionary mismatch. What is the mismatch like that we... The mismatch is that we are wired to do an easy thing, a comfortable thing every single time. In the past, our environment that that evolved for, that was a life hack, kept yeah. us alive. Yeah. 
but we've moved to a different environment. Oh, where it doesn't serve us. Where it doesn't serve us, yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I think, I'm sure for you listening to you, it's like, well, I like all these comforts. And for a lot of us, I mean, I know because I'm old enough, I, I think you are too, that we know life before the internet or life before smartphones. And we will probably be, I mean, we are the last generations that currently will know life without technology. And that also gives a strange, because like I recognize the the benefits that come with having technology, of course, that's connected us, that you know, is beautiful. And I also remember what it was like to not have a phone and to go play street hockey. And a lot of people don't even know life with any discomfort. And I know you argue that too, that like even for kids growing up, there's really not like, you know, in certain circumstances, in certain cultures, it is actually feels like it's incumbent upon the parent to minimize challenges, which I get that conceptually, but I don't think it served us. I don't think it served us to try to like make everything easy for kids, especially when you witness the real lack of capacity for any dysregulation today. Yeah, totally. So a couple things. Um, One is that when you look at mental health rates uh, and how they associate with having challenges in your life. Yeah. So on one end, there are people who have had just challenge after challenge after challenge in their life. Yeah. They have very bad rates of mental health. Okay. But on the flip side, people who have had no challenges in their life have equally poor rates of mental health. So it's a U-shaped curve. So We wouldn't expect that. Logically. You would not expect no. that. You would think that if you never had to face challenges, you'd be like, oh, great, things are good. That's not the case, though. What tends to happen is that having a certain level of challenges in your life, a decent amount, not too much that it becomes overwhelming. Not like over trauma. Yes. Yeah. Or even maybe that's wrong because trauma people can grow from. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's essentially um, there hits a tipping point where it becomes too much. Yeah. So you need some amount of challenges in your life in order to learn from them and to grow as a human. So we used to insert these, and since we're talking about kids, we used to insert these in the lives of young people in the form of rites of passage. Yeah. So what is a rite of passage? It's we have a person who's at point A in their life, and we need to get them to point B. Point B is where they are more confident, they're more capable, they're just better able to contribute to our tribe, to society, they're just, I mean, they have it figured out, right? We wouldn't just say, okay, now you're there. We would usually send them out into the wild to do something challenging, right? It could be like the lion hunt that the Maasai did. It could be a lot of Native American tribes in the U.S. would send people out into the wilderness for a week without a lot of supplies. And while out there, what happens is that you struggle. You don't know if you're going to figure things out. You're like, I might have to quit. I might have to go home. But by having that challenge and overcoming it, you learn something about yourself. Yeah. And then you can come back to society and you're like, oh, I'm more capable than I thought I was. And you sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, you found your shit. Yeah. And now you can help everyone. Yeah. And so I think by removing that um, from children's lives, which uh, you alluded to and we have in a lot of ways, I think you see some negative effects. So 1990 is when the rise of helicopter parenting really started. Chopper parenting. Yeah. Yeah. And what you tend to find is that kids born after 1990, because of this, they have higher rates of mental health problems because everyone's always done everything for them. So then you go out into the real world and all of a sudden, like, people aren't going to do everything for you. 
Like not everything Wait, is safe. I don't know. <laughs> and that, Can't you Uber eat everything? You know, just, yeah. I'll just get an Uber Eats for everything. So that becomes overwhelming, right? It's just like, yeah. oh my God, the world is hard and crazy. It's because you haven't faced as many challenges where if you're born before 1990, like you and I, when, when I was a kid, it was like, you go outside, my mom would be like, be home before the sundown. And when I'm outside, I'm probably getting in a little bit of trouble. I'm having interactions with other kids and learning social norms, like yeah. out on the playground. Like sometimes how to you, negotiate, compromise, yeah. yeah. How to con- and, and and sometimes you get punched, right? Yeah, I did get that. Yeah. yeah, but you learn from it. Yeah, you go, oh, okay, I can't say that to that person. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's like yeah. some social, a lot of social stuff that happens in that space that's not perfectly controlled. And when that starts to go away, you find that kids learn a lot less. Yeah, we don't have we don't necessarily, I guess, develop the skills one for self regulation, like the ability to be with our emotions. What you're saying about going out into, I guess, the wilderness or anything like that, I don't even know what that would be now. But you know, I mm-hmm. I like the idea of those ritual processes and contained, I guess, contained initiations mm-hmm. where you are put through this space where you get to see how strong you are, how how capable you are, as you were saying, mm-hmm. I would imagine almost none of us go through that. You know, I think of the people that I knew growing up who maybe moved out really young because their home wasn't safe. And they did discover that about themselves. You know, they're usually really productive people, people who have proven to them, like they had to grind. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, man, I didn't even know what a trust fund kid was till I went to New York for some school. And I remember learning that someone got a trust fund. And I'm like, what is a trust fund? Maybe we just don't have them. We must have them in Canada. I don't know. But I wasn't around that. And I remember learning about a few people who had these. And of the sample of two of two, which is not a great sample size, I get it, both of the, they were both men, both had addictions, like of some type. And I think for someone like me, like growing up with not like probably like lower middle class when I was growing up and then maybe moved up to middle class, I always envied these people who had lots of money. You know, I thought like if we had money, then we wouldn't have issues. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's, you know, that's probably a lot of socialization, a lot of media, a lot of everything. And, you know, you recognize that money does buy some liberation, does buy some things. And now being able to recognize that it... The removal of all friction is not actually in service of us. So how does the average person put in or create these initiatory processes, you know, not just for kids, but for ourselves? And you, I know you really, you didn't fuck around. <laughs> like, yeah. like, were you like, I'm going to choose something that is, and I know you talk about that Japanese principle, what, what is it called? Misogi. Misogi. Yeah. So maybe you can explain that, but like, is that what's required? Like, is it signing up for... Because in learning about what you talk about, I was like, oh, I haven't signed up for like a trail run race in a long time. And that like makes you have to really show up. Yeah. And so, yeah, what do, what do you suggest or what do you find? Yeah. So in the book, for context, I spent 33 days in the Arctic. with. with I learned about it. I'm like. Yeah, with two friends. Um, it was an extreme experience. I mean, it was, I had done a story on a guy whose name is Donnie Vincent from Men's Health. We became good friends. He's like this backcountry bow hunter, filmmaker guy. And he usually goes places like super remote, super extreme for months at a time. And he basically just invited me on this hunt up to the Arctic. And I'm like, well, this could be a good way to test out that theory on the upsides of discomfort. <laughs> 
And so I signed on and obviously I made it back, but I learned a lot along the way. Learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about the concept that I'm talking about in the book. The average person does not need to go to the Arctic, though. For 33 days. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one thing I learned. All of a sudden tickets sell out. Yeah. yeah. I think what it is is it's trying to figure out. So I think about this in two different ways. Yeah. One is I think that there is value in trying to take on a big physical task every single year. I talk about this concept in my book that is called Masogi. I learned about it from a guy whose name is Marcus Elliott. So he was this uh, Harvard-trained MD, decides he doesn't want to be a doctor. He wants to revolutionize sports science. And he actually ends up doing it. But one of the tools that he uses to really help players and even his neighbors, friends get to the other level is he does this Masogi. And the basic idea is that you're going to go out into nature once a year and you're going to do something really, really hard. And there's two rules. First rule is make it really hard. Second rule is don't die. Okay. <laughs> I like the second rule. Yeah. That would relieve a lot of people's anxiety. Yes. If you just know, oh, okay, don't okay, die. So we're not going to die. Yeah. Okay, good. Now, the catch with rule one is that it's defined as something doing something that has a 50-50 shot at failure. So when is the last time that you actually chose to do something that you thought you were going to have a 50-50 shot at failure? Like if you think about how society approaches marathons, we never say, I don't know if I'm going to finish. We go, I don't know if I'm going to finish in four hours yeah. or three hours or whatever the time goal is. We know we're going to finish. Yeah. What happens when you pick something that is appropriately hard is that you will have a moment that I kind of alluded to in the past where you think, I can't keep doing this thing. I'm going to have to quit. I'm giving in. Yeah. I've reached my edge. But if you can just go a little bit past that edge and a little bit farther, you get to look back and say, oh, well, I thought my edge was back there, but I'm past it. So I sold myself short in this thing. And then that raises the important question of where else in my life did I sell myself short? Oh, wow. Right? So you, in hindsight, then are witnessing your life through this now proven capability because yes. you've let yourself go there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you would have this, oh, fuck. Like, right. Like where else? Yeah. When have? Yeah. I think about that about relational knowledge, too. Like you yeah. learn you can lay a boundary and all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit. I, could, I always had boundaries available to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that there's good. I mean, this. so when I talk about this to people, they're always like, okay, it's kind of interesting but weird. And, <laughs> and I think that there's good historical precedence for it, though. Two reasons. One, you think about how humans evolved. We had to do hard stuff all the time. Yeah. We didn't have safety nets. We had to do this stuff to survive. And when we would do this stuff, whether it was hunting or having to move or whatever it might be, we would have moments like that where we had to dig seriously deep. We weren't sure if we were going to make it. It wasn't choice. Like yeah. you died if you didn't. You figured it out. Yeah. Every time you figured it out, you realized that you were a person that could figure it out and you could take that out into the rest of your life. That's yeah. also what, to go back to rites of passage, that is exactly what rites of passage are trying to incite, that realization. So once we wipe those out of our lives, I think we lose something. We lose sort of this gear that, you know, some people just have that gear where you're like, that person gets shit done. That person is unruffleable. Yeah. That is the person who I want to give the metaphorical ball at the end of the game, right? And so what is it about that? And I think it comes down to putting yourself in these moments where you really want to quit, where you think you're done, but you just keep going. And you see what that teaches you. And it's kind of a metaphor for a lot of things in life. Yeah. You know, it's, 
how do we how do I find these things and put them back into my life uh, in order to grow? Well, it's almost like all these things like technology or creature comforts have made it so we haven't even had to think about the question you're asking. Like, yeah, we haven't no. even had to think like no, I don't even need a threshold. I just sit on my couch watching Netflix, you know, yeah. or like it's interesting how you correlate it all though to the sort of circumstances we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Like we're not healthy on more than on average. Mm-hmm. You know, mental health is not good on average. Mm-hmm. So clearly all these, you know, I think about it even from the perspective of medicine, medicine, technology, all these things. It's like we are no healthier than we were probably 30 years ago when we really saw the uh, upswing of life expectancy, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it doesn't. It tells you that medicine isn't saving us, right. and it's not this like pill that's just. Although we try, mm-hmm. like, I saw that there's now new pills for obesity, and I'm like, oh yeah, and I'm like, man. At the end of the day, all of these things miss the necessary step, in my opinion, of getting to the core of what is. Why are we in these states? Where are we not being nourished? Why are we surrounded by things that aren't nourishing, including? Yeah community and these seeing that we can do hard things mm-hmm. like it's easy when you have a smartphone to avoid your emotions right. so when you're when you went into this 33 day arctic uh experience mm-hmm. so you said you never done anything like that not as extreme as that no <laughs> no and you i remember you talking about how many planes you had to catch to get from <laughs> here yeah, dude. Was it like five or something? Yeah, it was like five, six planes. In the last successively smaller. They get smaller every flight. <laughs> yeah. Scarier as yeah. you get. And you said that you land like basically in the tundra of the Arctic in your final plane. Yeah. You land in the middle like this these planes have these big tires that are called tundra tires. So you're in the plane with this, you know, pilot who looks like a roadie from Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this two-seater, and, like, it's so small that the dude is, like, sitting in between your legs. And, you know, he fires on the engine, and it's like a lawnmower. It's oh, just so like, there's only two people in the plane at yeah, the time. Yeah, in the final plane. We oh, have yeah, because like, you talk about taking turns. You have to, like, take yeah. turns, yeah. So he fires it on, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> like, it's just, it's just, you're just like, what am I doing in this thing? And he just takes off, and, you know, you're just up there, and it's the smallest thing ever. And then you just dive bomb down and just boom, boom, boom. You just land on the tundra. And then he just chucks your stuff out and says, all right, see you later. And you're by yourself. Bye. Yeah. And you were saying like, you have no technology, right? Like you have technology with you, but at that point you're not connected to a cell tower. No, no. What was that like for your body to experience that? Like you're in the middle of the Arctic. I'm guessing there's lots of bears. There's lots of everything. (laughs) Yeah. And did you land first, arriving? I know you left yeah. last, right? Yeah. I had, I can't remember what the Which order was, was, but I had, yeah, there was a time where I got left out in the middle of the tundra. And yeah, you're just alone. And it's like, okay, I'll be back in a while. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's not like I'm going to run out to the store. Like, no, you're just standing out there. Like, if something waiting comes for along, the next person. Just, I mean, there is, wow. you know, in the book I talk about it is like when a person, when I in normal life before that would say, I need to be alone, what would I do? I would go into my room and I would probably find a way to be with others through the TV or through, you know, whatever. Like we're rarely alone mm-hmm. because even when we are not with other live humans, like in the flesh, yeah, 
we probably are with other humans through media. It's so true. And we can easily just, we even take a shit and we bring our phone. Yeah, dude. <laughs> like, yes. you know? <laughs> yes. You see people at restaurants all the time, like, just going to go to the bathroom and they have to bring their phone. Yeah, they bring their phone. And then when they get up, they're, the other person on the other side of the table is like clamoring. Right. Um, so when I'm out there and the cell phone like doesn't work and I'm probably, based on where they were flying, I mean, I'm probably 40 miles from any human in any direction. Like that's 40 a trip. miles. 40 miles. That's so also a trip. so no lights. Like you can't see any lights. You mean from a city? Like just in general. Like there's not like a building, you know, Oh god, no. No. It must have been freaking no, wild. I mean we're hundred we're more than hundred miles away from any like any built environment. Like at all. So you fly there and then you fly to the next spot. So in that middle point, yeah, you're like really alone. And it hits you like okay, this is another level of alone. Yeah. And like, have I really been, like I'm at that point, how old was I? I'm 36 now, so I would have been like 33 maybe. And you don't have an out. You don't have an out. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting to create as a contained initiation. Like that you don't have an out from yourself. You don't have an out from yourself. You got no one to talk to. You got nothing to distract yourself. You're just there with your head and no one else, like no one else. I'd never experienced that before. Yeah, you talk about that, about like you were referencing the space that people go into, like the quietest place in the oh, world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, can you speak more to that and then what you found when you were mm-hmm. all of a sudden just like yeah, reading labels and shit, anything to... Yeah, yeah. so the, the quiet thing is fascinating because, because you're so far from civilization, it is a level of quiet that is alarming and uncomfortable at first, but... Once you get over that, it is like the most calming thing ever. So, for example, one morning, and I read about this in the book, I get out of our, you know, our teepee thing that we're staying in. It's basically a tent. And I walk out on the tundra. And I'm just standing there. And it is like so silent. And I just hear this. And I'm like, what in the hell is it? Like, it's the loudest thing I've ever heard. And it's just like raven behind me. But because my hearing has been reset to such a low level. Oh, wow. Like, like you're the so wings, attuned. The wings are making this noise that sounds like a freaking helicopter. Like it's crazy. If you're wearing – one of the guys had a watch that was – it was a quartz watch, so it ticked. And he's like out there alone. And he starts <laughs> going like – it's like, dude, I'm out there. And I like heard this something. And I like thought it was a bear breaking twigs or something. It's like it was my watch. It was my watch ticking. That's how loud it sounds. Because you're hearing yeah. so like reset. There's a place in the book or, that I read about. The place, the actual place is in Minneapolis. Like this just random building. Of all the places. Of all the places. <laughs> right, right. It's a random building. <laughs> and what they have inside it is a, a thing called an anechoic chamber. So it is essentially the, like a totally sound killing room. And it's the quietest place in the world. And what happens when you put people in there is at first they freak out. They're like, this is weirding me out. It's so quiet. But once they go through that, it almost seems to help people feel better. They've used it as a treatment. They're going to start using it as a treatment for vets with PTSD because it like really calms Their people once you're in silence. Yeah. yeah. And now that you know that, you know, loudness is associated with anxiety, humans have increased the world's loudness fourfold. Most people live at 70 decibels, which is basically is that like, like a city. That's like standing next to a working washing machine, just okay. constantly around us. People who live near loud roads, 
they have a 25% higher incidence of anxiety and uh, depression. So basically when you think about loud noises, in the past as we evolved, yeah. any loud noise is a bad is bad. It's an animal. It's going to kill you. It's a storm that's going to kill you. It's a rock falling down a hill that's going to kill you, right? <laughs> yeah. So our natural inclination is that when we hear loud noises, you get ramped up, right? If someone comes up behind you and claps, yeah. you go, whoa. Now that we've elevated the world's noise to a certain level, it seems to be this like low-level stressor on people. That makes sense. That we almost don't really notice it's there, but when you start to dig into the research, like they've tied a lot of stress and health problems to the fact that we're just in this constant noise all the time. So a good takeaway from that is if you um, if you want like a takeaway you can do at home that's easy, is try to find time for silence. Because you might be uncomfortable in it at first. I mean, like no music. You could even put earplugs in and just like sit and work and have some ideas. People tend to be more productive in silence when they compare people who work in silence versus noise. Um, you tend to get better ideas because they're more uninfluenced. Mm. So, yeah. Do you find like when your hearing was becoming so attuned, which is wild to think you're hearing yeah, was weird. Like the sound of a wing or your, you talk about your carotid too, right? Oh, if you stand there and don't move. I would start to hear like your lungs, like you really hear your breathing and you start to hear your blood moving up your arteries into your brain. It's like. That's like a whole nother. Oh, it's wacko. So if your hearing got more attuned, what did you find in terms, like as a writer, what did you find mm -hmm. in terms of your creativity? Oh, it was off the charts, dude. Were you just writing, writing, writing? Yeah, I had these, I brought these, um, notebooks that are they're made by a company called write in the rain so basically you can write in the rain oh <laughs> and, that's pretty cool yeah and so i mean i filled up a ton of those and i had just a ton of ideas and i think there's a variety of reasons for that i think it's the silence i think it's the nature exposure i think that it's that i was not spending so much time on digital media and when i say so much time i mean i wasn't spending any up there you're just having time to be completely removed and come up with ideas and i think that that is a theme that you see I mean, it's backed by research that time and silence, um, time removed from outside influence of digital media seems to spur creativity. But you also see it in anecdotes from some of our most creative people of all time. Like I've just listened to this book on um, Leonardo da Vinci, and mm -hmm. he would just like go out into nature and just be removed from everything and just sit in silence and like take a notebook and come up with these crazy ideas. And Steve Jobs did the same. A lot of um, like Mary Oliver, the poet, who's oh, like my gosh, favorite, incredible. she would do that. Saved by the beauty of the world. Yeah, like she's one amazing. of my favorite lines. Nice. Yeah, she's incredible. So you found your writing just everything amplified. Yeah, just the ideas are different and better and you know, less scattered. You have more time to really develop an idea. When you're working on a book, I mean a book is a very long thing. Yeah. And so things need to connect in a long stream of consciousness and you know, it's to me, creativity is being able to basically just connect disparate ideas that may not seem related, but you're able to relate them. And so having a lot of time, I think helps you kind of find those ideas and you can hold that one up here and search for that other one. And then you, Oh, you find it and you're yeah. like, bam, that's how it links. Whereas I think when you are sort of hustling in everyday life, you might hold that one up here, but then, Oh, I got a tweet. And then that's it. There though. it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm work. Kylie, my wife and I are currently writing a book mm -hmm. and that I found to be, I've been very mindful since I began writing mm -hmm. that, it's so easy to just be pulled into a new notification or a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I just put my thing on do not disturb, some headphones on, 
and put some, you know, writing binaural beats or something. Yeah. And just I'm try to stay in the zone. It's interesting, though, when you're mindful of all the distractions that come in life. If you haven't heard me talk about Cozy Earth Sheets before, let me tell you I'm about to introduce you to the greatest sheets you will ever have touch your body. Anytime someone comes to our house and stays in our guest room, they always want to know what is the bed situation. What are the sheets that we have? Their sheets, their comforters, their duvets, everything is magic. Their bedding is naturally breathable. It's temperature regulating. It's so damn soft. It's ethically sourced viscose from bamboo. It's incredible. And the brand was featured on Oprah's favorite thing But before that, it was featured on Mark's favorite things. Like, I discovered this brand years ago before I ever even chatted with them about being a sponsor for the podcast. And because I love their product so much, I asked for an exclusive offer for you and you get 40% off site-wide. And now they have pajamas. They have like loungewear. So not only do you get to wrap yourself in the experience of the sheets as clothing, but you then get to get into the bed in that. So you're like double wrapped. And so all you got to do to save 40% off site-wide is use the code GROVES at checkout. So just my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S. So go to CozyEarth.com. C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H dot com and use the code Groves and you get 40% off all their products. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. One thing that you talk about that I've been feeling called towards too is returning back to being engaged in the life process or the process of the food that we eat. Mm-hmm. And you speak to it in a way that I, I just really found um, descriptive of how I might feel when that moment happens because I haven't gone out hunting. You know, I I'm like come from a long line of farming and ranching and that kind of stuff in Canada, but you know, sort of stopped in my generation and I feel and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this too cuz you you're sort of engaged into the pulse of a younger generation as a professor. For me, I feel like one thing that I'm really witnessing is this people being drawn back to nature. And I I would imagine that's one of the reasons your book has been really so successful is that it's speaking to people to something they know is true, as you were saying at the beginning of the pod. Like they know something's up. And it's almost like we are craving having hands in soil. We're craving being engaged with the world again. Yeah, You know, like as much as this engagement with the world, the phone or computer – it's like replacing something that feels so necessary to our actual cellular function. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are you experiencing or witnessing that? And then I'd like to get into how you experienced reintegrating yourself into yeah. that process. So like you'll f- you'll find this and you're experiencing it now as you write your book. You're sitting there and you're writing and you're like, is this working? I don't know if this <laughs> yeah. is working. You know? yeah. And you're like – a book is very strange because you don't get immediate feedback. Yeah. You get feedback three years after the day you started it, right? That's and a wild disconnect. Very know? strange, yeah. especially in a world where post, bing, like in yeah. a second, right? Like feedback is just instantaneous now. So it's very strange. You don't mm. know if it's going to like, you're just, you just send it out and you're like, well, good luck, buddy. 
Um, <laughs> How it was before, you wrote a letter, you sent it. Yeah. You never know if you're going to hear back. You know, just yeah. Would it make it there? Who knows? Yeah. And so I think that it, the fact that the book has resonated, especially, I mean, one of the upsides of technology, to your point before, is that I get a lot of outreach from people who are like, hey, I read your, read your book and I changed my behavior in X way and it benefited me in Y way. And one of those ways is spending a lot more time outdoors. And I think a lot more physical activity outdoors, basically just trying to sort of reconnect to, I don't know, something sort of more ancient, you know? It feels primal. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. to choose it is interesting too, because it's like to consent with it, yeah. you know, where formerly people who were trying to survive on, right. let's say, the the uh, in the outback or in the plains or mountains <laughs> wasn't optional. Right. Now we're like, oh, I'm going to go into suffering. Yes. Which is really, uh, I like it. It's intentional. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm sure you've seen that dialogue of like, choose your heart. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, being overweight is hard. So is losing weight, right? Or it's done the other way. But like, yeah. you know, this idea of quitting smoke, smoking is hard. Quitting smoking is hard. Like you got to choose. Yeah. It's very, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about you can be comfortable in the short term and have long-term problems. Yeah. Or you can be uncomfortable in the short term and get long-term benefits. It's so simple. It's like that is. You know, okay, so like if you're overweight right now. MC squared. You yeah. Know? If you're overweight right now and you want to lose weight, I'm not going to lie. It is hard to not eat. It's not you're fun. It's, it's not way fun. more it fun sucks. to put on weight. It's way more I've fun to it. eat. Yeah. So having to consistently choose something that is not only counterintuitive, but also a, a fighting against like two and a half million u- years of evolution, that is hard. At the same time- Contextualizing that is important, yeah. Yeah, it's hard, but it, it's a battle you probably want to fight if you're looking for longer term benefits and don't want to feel stuck. I mean, I think eventually a lot of people will hit sort of a tipping point where they're like, I got to do this, and you want to try and hit that tipping point as early as possible. So, and that goes for all things. That goes for right. me with addiction. That goes for if you're, you know, morbidly obese. That goes for if you've got a problem with spending too much time on your cell phone. If you got, I mean, name any problem. I mean, you could name a million relationship problems that fall into that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's like, it's easy to not talk about the hard things. Yeah. Right? You could sweep it all under the, under the rug. Yeah. But eventually you're going to trip on it. Yeah. You know, and it's a lot harder to have the conversation now in whatever context and whatever with ourselves first, but with other people. But the gain is that, you know, everyone is liberated through that experience. It's just true. Totally. Just like, you know, the I was reflecting on how during COVID I put on a bit of weight. And then I was thinking to myself, what I noticed is my unconscious thoughts when I was being conscious of them were like, I hope nothing happens to me. Like, mm-hmm. I hope I don't have a cardiovascular event. Mm-hmm. Not make sure I do everything in my fucking power to ensure that isn't happening. Because I wasn't doing everything right, in my power right. as I was eating, you know, Miss Vicky's salt and vinegar chips, which if you're, you're going to put good, on weight, that's, that's a great good, way to do good. it. <laughs> yeah. I do feel this desire that people have to return to, yeah, more of like this holistic living, being mm-hmm. in touch with the land. Yeah, I'm curious about your experience of... Landing in this place where, one, you have no technology, so now you're, like, re-immersed in really the cycles of the day. You know, you're you're getting up and going to sleep with mm-hmm. circadian rhythm of Earth, which that's like, what was it like to re-merge with the cycles of the planet? Oh, I mean, like, yeah. I slept better than I ever have in my life. I, and I think there's a combination of it being dark, it being so silent, and also the fact that, 
Like we are working our asses off every single day. Like you're physically exhausted at the end of the day. Um, oh, from your like walking. From and- having to carry heavy packs everywhere. How heavy across- was your pack? When we had all our gear in it, they would be about 70 to 80 pounds probably. So were you like training for that? Here's the thing. Yes, but you cannot train for that. That's like the one thing I learned. I probably, if I would have done something differently with training, I went in like jacked. Like, you know, I look like Conor McGregor, like pre-fight. I should have gone in like 20 pounds overweight because we couldn't bring in enough food and we just lost weight. So I like, I should have just gone in like... Way just heavier like than I did. Really eating a lot on the way. Yeah, just like bulked up because I would I, I would have shed it all immediately out there. Wow. So, yeah. So when you landed and you're experiencing, you know, like what does the adventure look like? Like you get there and then they're like, "Let's go." Yeah, you're basically. I mean, first thing you do is like number one rule of surviving in the wild is don't get a shelter. So we look for a place that we're going to pitch the teepee that we have. It's like this giant. It's called the Kafaru teepee, and it's just like this giant. TP basically. We pitch that and then it's like, okay, find some of like get sort of camp set up and then tomorrow we're hunting. And it's a lot of like walking to, you know, where we think the caribou are early gonna in be. the morning, like early getting up morning. early. Yeah, get up super early, just like walk a long way. We'd have a lot of times where we would, you know, see a herd and so we try and get to them. When caribou were on the move though, you're just like never gonna catch them. Their walk is like 12 miles an hour. So uh, when they're just chilling? When they're just on a normal walk, it's 12 miles an hour. If they're sprinting, That's they're fast. Dude, way fast. Yeah. What is their like top speed? I think they're one of the fastest land animals. I think it's 55. Don't quote me on that, but it's something like Miles that. per hour. Miles an hour. That's freaking crazy. Dude, they're nuts. So just chilling, walking, they're doing, I guess it's like a trot. But they're, 12 miles per hour as a trot is like a human sprint. It's like a five-minute mile or something. We can't sustain that. Yeah, and it's also across the tundra, which is like the worst thing you could ever walk on. It's this. Um, it's like partially frozen. So when you're stepping, you're. it's almost like walking in beach sand where yeah, you're kind of interesting. feet sink. Yeah, so you just, you know, one mile out there feels like Are five. you wearing snowshoes? We're wearing like these giant like boots that are insulated that are heavy yeah they're heavy how cold is it lowest it got down to is probably negative 40 with the wind chill that was one day and that's the only time celsius and fahrenheit cross are the same oh really yeah there you go (laughs) and that's cold yeah it was cold it was very cold so you would go out hunting and is that the main intention was like go get food and then chill yeah, basically. basically. That's yeah. what we were there to what do. What did the hunting look and, like? And for, well, for me too, I mean, I'm there learning, taking notes, observing, because I didn't, you know, I knew I could expect some things, you know, because with, with the book, it's like you pitch it and I hadn't gone on the trip before I pitched the book. So I'm like, I think it's probably going to be cold up there. Like I can make that <laughs> assessment, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. but like I didn't know it was going to be that silent. I didn't you know. didn't know the other things yeah, that would bring yeah. discomfort. And then you're like, oh, man, like this is so much quieter than normal life. And it's almost like uncomfortably silent at first. But it's very calming. So then you kind of like you're, you know, noting that. And yeah. What was that like when you were going out hunting? Yeah, oh, what was that like? It's a lot. I mean, honestly, it's a lot of like you go to a – we would go to a point. So we might have to hike like five miles to a point we wanted to be at um, to observe well. Five then, miles? Yeah, and then you just out. and then you would just sit though. Like cuz you're waiting for caribou to come through. And so honestly, and I read about this in the book, it is unbelievably boring. Because you don't have <laughs> your cell phone. I'm not bringing like magazines and books and stuff, right? So all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, like I'm bored again." I haven't been bored since I was like 
11 years old, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we would just have, I mean, the stupidest discussions. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. would you rather? And then we would read the labels on our food. Like literally read the whole thing. That's how, the level of. Boredom. Yeah. Read our tags on our energy, our tags on our jackets and stuff. You're like, oh, so this, yours is, wait, why is yours 51% polyester and mine's like 49? You know, like. What do you think they did that for? And that you're just like having these weird conversations. But because of that, what's interesting is <laughs> when you think about, so to put boredom in context, because in the book I talk about how boredom can be a good thing in the yeah. context of today. So to understand why people get bored in the first place, boredom is this evolutionary discomfort and it tells us whatever you're doing with your time right now, your the return on your time invested is worn thin. So let's pretend it's a million years ago. We're all sitting on a hill and hunting. Now, we need food or else we're going to die. So we're hoping for animals to come through. Mm-hmm. No animals are coming through. So what would happen is boredom would kick on and it would just tell us, go do something else. Like, this isn't doing anything for you. In the past, that something else was productive. It might be that we went and picked food, other food, right? We picked berries or something. So we'd survive. But today, when we feel the discomfort of boredom, we've got like the easiest, most stimulating escapes from it. You pull out your phone. You turn on a TV screen. You go on a computer. Now, it's not that these things are inherently bad. It's just that that is how we deal with boredom all the time. So the average person spends more than 12 hours a day on digital media now. When I wrote 12 the, hours? When I wrote the book, the stat was 11 hours, 6 minutes. Now it is 12 hours, 31 minutes, I want to say. Like we've added another hour and a half. Wow. And you said that you census, you would like survey your students. Yeah. It's like who has the highest. Oh, yeah. Do, so, What was the highest you've ever heard? The highest I've ever heard. God, I can't believe they share it. Yeah, I, I'm shocked too. Um, and this one was gross. 16 hours a day on the cell phone. And I'm like, dude, what? I mean, this is a 100-person class. And I'm like, I mean, this kid beat the hell out of everyone. And I'm like. Most people, wh- 7, 8, 9, 10, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. Every, most, people, most of my students tend to be between like 4 and 8. So this kid's 16. I'm like, what is going on? And he just goes, TikTok, man. I can't stop watching it. I just watch TikTok like all day. I'm like, oh, that's like a, that's like a clinical thing. You know, that's like a legit yeah, that's addiction. An addiction. Yeah. But well, I wonder what the line is, you know, because like you're talking about really the, how boredom is a trigger to the recognition of what you're doing with your time. Right. Right. And it's good feedback yes. as to the use of your time. Mm-hmm. If you never get bored – because of something that is actually not productive, mm-hmm. which don't get me wrong, is like I watch Netflix sometimes. Mm-hmm. I l- look at videos on YouTube. So I don't think it's about the eradication necessarily of the behavior. But it's like anything. If you're not choosing your relationship with it, then it's choosing it. Much like my relationship to alcohol yeah. felt a lot that way mm-hmm. of like, why can't I connect not over a beer? Mm-hmm. Like, I know I can. But why is it that I feel like if I go on a bachelor party, I have to drink? Right. Or like in the social pressure of those things. Like if you're not in control of the relationship, then that's going to create anxiety anyways. Yeah, totally. You know, because then you're at the whim of it. But 16 hours, like I don't know where the line is because I would imagine you're saying the average person spends 12 hours. Yeah, that's from all forms it's of media. It's a fucking job. Like yes. that's that's more than a job. It's from cell phones, TVs, computer screens, iPads, all this stuff. It's twelve hours a day. 
Wild. And so, you know, to me, and exactly to your point, it's like, it's not saying don't, like, don't do anything. But I think one of the issues we see today is so much emphasis gets put on put on cell phones, which makes sense because they're on our persons all the time. Mm-hmm. But what tends to happen is that when someone makes an effort to take an hour off of their cell phone screen time, they get bored and they're like, oh, what the hell do I do? And they watch Netflix or they go on their computer. Oh, yeah. So they're not actually. Your, your brain doesn't know the difference between those two things, right? So you want to think, how can I add more boredom into my life? And a way that I think <laughs> about this is I go for a walk every day outside 20 minutes and I don't take my cell phone. And it's just. Do you do that every morning or just sometime in the day? Yeah. 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 And it sort of gives your mind time to wander, time to process, time to come up with weird ideas because the idea thing back to what we were talking about. I mean, that is legit. There's this, uh, this study that's one of the best weirdest studies ever. And scientists take two groups of people. They let one sit in a room for 15 minutes and they're like, yeah, just do whatever. So all these people pull out their cell phones. They get another group and they bore the hell out of these people. They don't let them look at cell phones. They make them view this like this demonstration of how to fold laundry. Like it's the most <laughs> boring thing in the world. And then they give them a creativity test. Now, the board group came up with more, more creative answers than the non-board group, like consistently. And that's because having time where your brain is just sort of downturned and you're allowing your mind to wander and you're kind of – because when something bores you, the first thing that happens is that your brain starts to wander. You mind wander, right? You're just kind of going inward. You're thinking weird stuff. And that's where ultimately good ideas come from is that space. That's why people have good ideas in the shower. Oh, because yeah, you're not doing so anything. True. You're unstimulated. You're just kind of like letting your mind wander. To think about inserting that time is interesting. Like the thing, the thought that on our fucking to do list today is actually yeah. not to do something. <laughs> yeah, it's so foreign. You know, it's wild to me that we've even gotten to this place. But I get it. You know, but I'm also like, we have rapidly escalated our comforts much quicker than our biology could ever have. I talk about this a lot. Just that. Like we don't psychologically or neurologically stand a chance to these technologies because they have armies of social scientists, anthropologists, you know, mm-hmm. behavioral scientists who are like, how do we make this more addictive? Yeah. And, you know, TikTok is a great example of that because they changed their way of delivering content to be content forward. They don't give a shit who you follow. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, let's just deliver the video that will keep them on here. So it's even crazy to me that we're watching like videos of people dancing, mm-hmm. not dancing ourselves, but like right. uh, some people are dancing. But you know, it's like we're obsessed with watching all these things, mm-hmm. and crazy how much our brain is like. Oh, I want to watch someone jump off a cliff. I want to do this, but mm-hmm. we're not doing doing any of this. I saw this is not a judgment, but I just have to say this. Yeah, I saw that sponsored athletes are. Video game people who play sports on video games. Like that. Really? That it's like they're very famous for playing like specific sports. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, and they're called athletes. And people watch them play. Yeah, yeah. It's not a judgment, but I'm just like, that's not actually athletics. Like playing an athlete is not being an athlete. Yeah. You know, it'd be like mm-hmm. having a video game where you go to the Arctic <laughs> yeah. and you like go, we'd even want just for, pure fucking comfort, the ridiculousness of us as a species, we would want to VR that shit. Yeah. It's like, yeah. fly me in the little plane that Michael's <laughs> talking about. Yeah. You know? Totally. It's a, f- it's a good business idea. <laughs> yeah, like, how do I create these initiations in a technological AI 
whatever that, I forget what it is, like Web 3.0 or whatever it is, which is, again, like less being with the world. I mean, I know our brain doesn't necessarily know the difference, but I think it does. I think on like a cellular level, it's like you know you're engaging with technology and not the earth. Well, I think you definitely, people find that they have maybe what you call richer experiences in when they're kind of either with others in person. Yeah. You know that. Also, time outside, we know that that's really good for people. And just having time where you're making creative works is really good for people as well. Yeah. You know, if you can, and and maybe that is on like a video on TikTok. But not just having like this flood of media coming at you all the time. I think it's I think it's very safe to say like, yeah, we should probably do some other stuff beyond TikTok all day, you know? Like I think, yeah, maybe. Yeah. What was it like to get back to, because I want to know more about it, what was it like to hunt and like the process and, and the experience you talk about of, of actually taking the life of an animal mm-hmm. in order to eat it? And we don't think about that. Like no. when we buy steak or whatever it is, you know, formerly are in, you know, in our own personal indigenous roots and people who are indigenous to this land, you know, there is a process of thanking the animal. There's a process. I know I forget, I would butcher where it came from, but there's a belief that the animal presents itself to you mm. as a gift, mm-hmm. right? That you need food and in service of your survival and sort of how this all works, right? that the animal presents itself to you and then you know, you bless the animal mm-hmm. and when you, when you kill it, what was that like? So for me, I, at first I didn't want to hunt, uh, on the trip. And I talked to Donnie, who's the, one of the guys I went with. And he said, you know, I think you would understand why we go out here and do this better if you were to hunt. So I said, okay, maybe I'll hunt because my hangup is like, yeah, I eat meat, but I don't need to kill myself, you know? Yeah. So long story short is. I go as far, I buy the hunting tag I need to buy. I carry the rifle for two weeks on this trip. And I'm thinking like, all right, I'm not going to have to hunt because like we suck at hunting. Like we haven't, you know, we haven't gotten <laughs> close to any of these things. <laughs> we suck at hunting. Yeah. <laughs> but then we get into a position where, to make a long story short, basically we could predict that these uh, herd of caribou was going to come up over this knoll. And if we were to get on the other side of that knoll and get down, like they would walk right past us. And that ended up happening. So we're like army crawling in on the tundra. And the whole time I'm going like, I don't actually have to hunt. I'm going like, you don't have to hunt, dude. Like, you <laughs> I don't love have to yourself, hunt. Doc. You're like reassuring. Yeah. You, know, you don't right. have to do this. Just hand the rifle to Donnie. Like, whatever. So we get in position. I'm looking down the scope. And, you know, you see these antlers appear at the top of the knoll. And it's just like, whoa. And they start kind of coming down this whole herd. And still then, <laughs> don't have to hunt. Uh, Does um, anyone else have a rifle? Just me. But cool. I could hand it off if I wanted to, that time, you know, because yeah. we're only taking one for weight reasons. And then I see this pair of antlers that has kind of like this hitch. And it's this really old caribou who's been, his back leg is injured, so he's limping. Uh, probably doesn't have a lot more time. And it felt right. So I lined it up, pulled the trigger, and the caribou goes down. Now, right after that, like, I'm a total mess. <laughs> like I'm a mess, dude. Like yeah. I'm just going. It was immediate regret. I'm going. Ugh, what yeah. have you done? Because you're like you can't come back from this. There's no coming back, right? We go over to the animal. Still, I'm a mess. But we start breaking it down because we're going to use every part that we legally can. You have to leave some of it. And so we start like getting the meat ready to take back to camp. I realize like 
oh, this is meat. Like, this looks just like the meat you eat, like, every single day. But with that meat, you've never felt an iota of emotion. Interesting. But, like, here you are to have that a mess with this yeah. meat. So what that really told me is that it gave me a lot more, like, a lot more appreciation for the life cycle. Makes you realize that for one creature to live on, another often has to die. Yeah. And then the next logical jump is... Oh, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> left out of that equation, yeah. right? So it was it was an interesting moment and what I took from that is a lot more appreciation for our food system. Yeah. I didn't think about meat before. I think about it now. And where it comes from and I definitely don't waste it at all anymore. Like I got this I got this total thing now where it's like you don't waste meat, you know, cuz that is a heavy emotional buy-in. Like it is. Yeah. And our food system is great and that we've been able to feed however many Americans at 360 mil- million people and around the world, like hunger has dropped precipitously ima- around the world. You know, usually when there's a hunger problem in a nation, it's a problem of politics, not distribution. Like we have enough food, but it's become so efficient that it's very much disconnected us from that mm-hmm. life cycle. From the process. Of and it. I think that yeah. that's an important part of life and learning and just, I mean, for me it was. And appreciating where things come from and also realizing, like, you start to ask yourself questions about your own mortality. Yeah. You know, and that's that's an uncomfortable thought. I I have a whole chapter in the book about the benefits of thinking about death. Like, yeah, it's like the most uncomfortable thing you can think about. But it tends to change people's behavior in a way that improves their lives in the long term. What did you notice in that exploration of death? Like, you know, oh. it's through the taking of a life, then the recognition of your own life, yeah. having an expiration date. Right. Yeah. What was that like? It made me a lot more intentional about how I was spending my energy and awareness, I guess I would say. Yeah. So, you know, when I first started, like, contemplating this, and it's so, I was like, it's the worst thing you can think about, you know? It's, like, <laughs> so uncomfortable because it's such a big question and so many unknowns. It's a sad question, too. It is. You, you know, I noticed when I went deep down the tunnel, I guess, or whatever yeah. it is, of mortality, it made me um, really grieve each moment so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, because then I'm like, oh, well, this moment will never happen again. It also really demands presence. Yeah. You know? Forces it. Yeah. This is why I think we have such a hard time handling relational endings or endings in general, because we don't, we haven't sat with big D death. Mm. So like small D deaths are, and I think part of, um, you know, you use that term, which I hadn't heard before. Is it like snowplow parenting? Or oh, like, snowplow parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the, like helicopter parenting on steroids for. But it's like the clearing way. the way. Is that right? The idea is clearing the way. A great example of that would be the, those college scandals in the UC system where parents just paid their kids way to get into all these hard colleges. Yeah. It's like no, like plowing every single problem out of a kid's way. Yeah. And I, you know, coming back also to what we were talking about in terms of when you haven't experienced the need for grit and resilience because you haven't even experienced small D deaths. Like mm-hmm. there, you don't even know disappointment and disappointment means there's something wrong with the person or the circumstance, not your behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all so correlated. Yeah. I'm like, so when, when you explore death, like, I mean, you're also out. You could die where you were. I mean, yeah. you kind of broke your rule, second rule, I guess. Like, don't die. But <laughs> I, I guess you're with uh, that guy. Sounds like he could survive with anything. Don. He, he was like, 
he made me feel a lot better about being out there because like something would be happening and I would be like, oh man, this is sketchy as hell. And I'd look over at him and he's just kind of do do do. I'm like, oh okay, we must be all right. You know, it's like when I jack flight attendants on planes. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> yeah, all right, we're not dying. Yeah, exactly, a lot like that. No, it's interesting. And and as part of the book afterwards, I traveled to Bhutan, which is an interesting place because it's one of the least developed countries on earth, but it's also consistently ranks as one of the happiest. So to give you a sense of- It's a blue zone. Is uh, it a blue zone? I don't know if it's a blue zone. There's not a stoplight in the entire country. There's no outside businesses, but yeah, they're happy. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of them, researchers think, is that the people in Bhutan are instructed to think about death every single day. And there's reminders of death everywhere in the country. So when people die, their ashes get mixed with clay and turned into these like pyramids. They're about that big. And these pyramids are- all over like you go around a road bend and there'll be like 300 of them you're walking through the main city and like every windowsill has a bunch of them so there's this constant reminder of death and powerful yeah and so i speak with this i go there and i speak with a guy who is a kempo in the buddhist faith which is i guess it would be kind of akin to like a cardinal he lives in this like crazy cliff side shack and we have to like drive up this insane road to get there. And I got to hike in and this guy wrote a book <laughs> called the fine art of living and manifesting a peaceful death. So he's like this death expert. Right. And the way that he put it to me, and by the way, this is like some shit from a movie that I walk into. I mean, this is like some Indiana Jones like scene. I mean, the dude is like in this shack that has no running water, electricity, and I like peel back this orange drape and there's like this statue of the Buddha on one side with these incense. And he's like sitting in the lotus position in his orange robes. And it's just like, <laughs> it's like straight up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was wild. What he said that stuck with me most is he's like, okay, I want you to pretend that you are walking down a trail. And in 500 yards, this trail has a cliff. Well, the cliff is death. And you are actually on the trail right now. You're walking the trail right now. Every one of us is going to walk off that cliff. And then he looks at me and he goes, don't you want to know there's a cliff there? Because if you know there's a cliff, it's going to change how you walk the trail. Mm. You're going to have different conversations with the people you're walking the trail with. You're going to take in the nature around the trail. You're going to savor each step on the trail. In the U.S., we often don't want to know that there's a cliff there. Yeah. We just kind of keep walking and then, oh, went off yeah. But in Bhutan, by thinking about death, people understand there's a cliff there and it changes their behavior, right? And I think that that works for anyone if you're willing to sort of take death into your mind and let it guide your behavior. Because what tends to happen, and this has been shown in research on this topic, people report that thinking about death was exceedingly uncomfortable in the short term but it made them happier in the long term because it helped them make better decisions. Mm. So when you realize you're going to die, you're like probably not going to get as worked up about dumb shit. <laughs> we all tend to, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It might align like, what do I really want to be doing with my time? Like if you're in a job that you absolutely hate, but you just kind of feel like, well, I don't know about that one thing. Like maybe you're willing to take the little bit of a risk that you need to, to like improve your life. Like all these different things you're going to, maybe it's going to have you appreciate your loved ones more. And tell them that. Yeah. It's going to improve those relationships. So it can kind of have this ripple effect on behavior that seems to improve people's lives. Yeah, I feel like the exploration of it makes us raise our standards. Mm-hmm. Not just for ourselves and, and not just for other people, 
but like through for what we want, like yeah. what we're willing to work towards, the that we are willing to go through short term suffering or discomfort in order to get whatever it is that we know impermanence makes us desire more and maybe more willing yeah. to step towards. I mean, so many of us tolerate bullshit, not just from other people, but from ourselves because we think life's long, but life's not. I mean, I guess it's incredibly long if you are in circumstances you hate. Yeah. But that's like, that's the wrong kind of suffering. Yeah. You know, it's suffering that you're choosing mm-hmm. out of the avoidance of potential. Like that is bananas. Yeah. Totally. You know, it's it's wild. And do you notice a difference? Because as a professor, you're like in touch again with, I don't have a lot of friends who are 20, mm-hmm. you know. Do you notice a difference generationally or through the ages of people that you converse with? In terms of? Like exploration of death, willingness to have our conversations. Like we talk about the snowplow yeah. parenting. Was there a delineation of a or like time as a professor where there was a switch for you? The death thing, I think, can kind of become hard for someone who's like 19 because you're just like, nah, I'm going to live forever. You're so like I don't, super excited. Yeah. You're like, just don't like, fucking rain on my parade. Yeah. Right. That's just, they're not going to die. I'm going to a party tonight. They're never going to die. Yeah. yeah. They're never going to die. But I will say in terms of what I would consider maybe resilience, willingness to take ownership on, I guess, a lack of hustle, I'll put it. Um, I think that's gone down over time, and I've been at UNLV for maybe six years, but I think it drops a little, a little bit every year. Yeah, and that's not to say that there aren't kids that I teach that are just absolute, like, hustlers. I'll tell you what. I'm going to take a freaking UNLV A-. minus. I work 50 hours a week, the night shift at the casino, and manage to get, like, straight B-pluses. I'm taking that kid over the Harvard A student who didn't have a job yeah. through college, 10 times out of 10. Agreed. That kid's a freaking killer. And I have some of those. But I also have kids who, there's more often kids who either they're not working or they need to work, but there's a expectation that, oh, well, I'm working. I don't have to do any any of the work in this class. I don't have to show up to class because I'm working. It's like, no, when you sign up for it, like that's what you're agreeing to. Yeah. Like it's under the context of your life and like we don't determine what your life is like, right? There's not like a clause because you wanted to make some money. Like right. And so and there's also a lot higher tendency to if someone disagrees with me and it may I may not even know that they disagreed with me. For someone to like email a person who would be over me. Like be, a dean or something. Yeah, like, like that. email the dean and be like, you know, oh, I didn't like this grade on my paper. Which is like, okay, well, like if you just came to me and talked about it, like we could talk it out because like I'll probably just give you points for like you're pushing back, you know? Right. And for like, demonstrating yeah. the ability to face conflict, to handle hard conversations, yeah. to not try to go to an authority. Oh man, that's so the training. Yeah. You see that that's very patternistic of of like, oh, I'll just go to my parent. It's like I'll just go yeah. to the dean. Mm-hmm. God. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You've, I mean, have you noticed, because you've been on social media for a while. Yeah. Have you noticed things like changing over time? Like what's your sense oh, of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. I mean, you know, I think the thing about cancel culture and, and sort of the rise of it came from you know, for good reason. We had to, there needed to be a cultural correction mm-hmm. to the lack of responsibility and accountability for the uh, exploitation of power mm-hmm. and the sort of free use of words without the consideration of other people. Yeah, I agree. But man, I getting into the complexities of things like free speech, like I noticed it really started to escalate with me too, of course, that escalated a lot where people were afraid to say anything or, mm-hmm. like, dudes more specifically. But I found during that time it was actually really important to use your voice as a dude to, like, have these conversations, mm-hmm. talk about exploitation of power. And then Black Lives Matter, again, a very powerful movement, very important movement. And so as these highly, but the thing about all these movements, which rightfully so, are fueled with emotion. Mm-hmm. COVID, the conversation about vaccination, oh, my God. like. Right. That really amplified what I hadn't witnessed before, and I think that conversation also about gender, what I hadn't witnessed before was the complete eradication of nuance. Mm -hmm. That is what I've noticed is going away. Yeah. And I know just from reading research and, you know, having friends who work in universities, that that has been gone for a bit in universities, and it's been creeping and getting worse and worse. And... That has been the most alarming for me. I think what I've witnessed in the last three years and just because there's, you know, to be canceled is in itself a traumatizing experience. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that people don't need to be held accountable for things, of course. But it's like there's a saying that you can have accountability without annihilation. And I think we, much like we don't have rituals, you know, and, and thresholds that we're walking through, we also don't have the modeling of restoration. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think there's a lot of people now self-censor, and I was thinking about this actually today, that the reason the conversation about things like free speech are really important and censorship is because if you witness your government or media or social media censoring and canceling dialogue about something, mm-hmm. then you now have permission to do it within your relationship, your family, your community, and your culture. Yeah, And you almost feel good about it, and I think that's you do feel good about it. You feel like you're protecting people. You feel like you're saving people. And I think there has been a massive escalation and amplification of the abuse of virtuosity. Yeah. Like now when I see someone virtue signal, I'm just like, it's almost a red flag now Mm -hmm. to me. It feels contrived. It feels like they're doing it to get status. And it does confer status. The research on virtuosity shows that. Mm-hmm. The, the research on presenting as a victim, which is not to minimize the experience of true victimization, but I think that all, that whole movement psychologically, I think has been really corrosive to just interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Like, I can't disagree with someone about, you know, and love their choice for them mm-hmm. about these things. Like, we were talking before we hit record about, like, I've been a liberal 
self-identifying, I guess, but like supportive of liberal motions, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like movements. But now I'm like, I was against mandates and now I was considered right wing. Like that to me is like, I don't belong over there, but you're putting me over there because mm-hmm. I have one Viewpoint. principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even curiosity. I mean, I was a rep in pharma for 14 years. Yeah. I feel like I have some level of expertise on the industry. Yeah. I'm not a doctor, not claiming that, but I'm like, to not even be curious, to not allow nuance, I mean, I don't know. Like, do you see that completely? Like, am I? Well, I think that, and. And push back on anything I'm saying, No, but I, th- I think the nuance thing is you hit the nail on the head. There's not a lot of nuance. And I think that, you know, science isn't a destination. It's a process. The things that we hold truest today, we're eventually going to look back on them and be like, oh, man, we were wrong about that. Yeah. I mean, like, literally, scientists think that the theory of gravity is going to be, we're going to think differently about gravity in the next, you know, distant future. And so I think when you look at, especially health science, like it is so murky. Like we just don't know so much. And like being unwilling to talk about like, okay, well, there could be differences in populations, like how the, how something might affect them. Like being unwilling to get into the gray area and all things, well, probably not all capital A, but like the yeah, vast majority of things. things yeah, yeah, the vast majority of things. I, I don't think that that's a good idea because I don't think the the answer for bad ideas is to shut them out. I think it's to talk about them with people who have better ideas and let people decide for themselves. Right. I yeah. think when you censor, it makes the it makes this idea more powerful and it makes people believe it more. And so really, I think ideas should be talked about and we can figure out what are the shitty ideas over time. You know, people are adults. Like, but we don't treat people as adults. You know, I think that's been, you know, the recent, like the Twitter files, for example. Mm-hmm. One of the, or a few of the email exchanges, and I believe it was a group from Stanford. Mm-hmm. I forget what, the, what it was called. But it was that they were in charge of censoring truthful information. Mm-hmm that might contribute to vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if your natural response to truthful he- information is hesitancy, that's actually a being engaged in informed consent. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. And so I'm like, and I think this just speaks to so many of the things that we're not even willing to dialogue about is that someone else, which I don't know, I don't think there's like an evil group of eight people sitting around a room yeah. having cigars <laughs> laughing. Yeah. Although maybe, right? Like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. But someone else gets to decide what is the right perspective on all these things. Mm-hmm. And then the media just gets to decide what doesn't get written about, what doesn't get shared. To me, that just is like, I was thinking earlier, like, I can't understand why anyone would be supportive of, but I actually can. Because it's so destabilizing if you sign up or, like, identify with any of those ideas which you're welcome to, the idea that it's not true now is too destabilizing. Mm -hmm. So we almost like live in this space where we are enmeshed. Our our identities are enmeshed with what we believe politically or whatever. Right. And we've even crossed these things over. That's what I think is fascinating. It's like now it is right wing to question pharma. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? I thought like greatest propaganda operation I could imagine is one get everyone in questions pharma now to be the the bad person and two turn freedom into a word that is actually considered gross or mm, yeah. 
which That's interesting. don't get me wrong. Like I, I get there's so much nuance to even what mm-hmm. I'm saying because I get far right. That's fucked. Mm-hmm. But the far left's pretty fucked now too. Yeah. Like they're, they're both intolerant. Right. And right. see any threat to their ideas as being as, – as us having the right mm-hmm. to just cancel. And I don't know. You're in – you know, you teach journalism. Yeah. I feel like I'm swimming in this soup between two ends being like, someone throw me a fucking life raft. I don't I, know. I feel like it's – kind of going back to what I said, I'd like, like there's so much that we don't know. And so being willing to recognize that there's a lot of uncertainty in all these things and communicate that effectively, mm-hmm. I think should be a reasonable position. To tell the truth. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, since we're on the topic of vaccines, I mean, wh- when they first came out, it was like the idea was like, oh, if you just get vaccinated, you're not going to get COVID. That didn't turn out to be true, but I don't feel like the message was like tweaked to be like, oh, Okay, you can, but like you're probably going to be better off if you get COVID. And that does seem to be the case. Right. That wasn't communicated well. So if you don't communicate the one thing that people can clearly see isn't right, then they're going to question all your shit. Yeah, you completely disrupt trust. Yeah. So you got to be like, hey, we thought this. Like, because people, like, we don't know a lot. You got to put someone in charge. Humans are flawed. But if you're in charge, I feel like, your response with information should be, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be upfront. I'm going to have everything. Like, I'm just going to shed light everywhere. Hey, I thought this. Turns out this isn't the case, but here's kind of what I think now and why I think it. Now you can make a decision. I've told you everything I know, and I'm in this position of authority. Here's where I got my information. Make your own decision. Yeah. You know, and I think that presenting people with, like, people aren't dumb. Like people and realize them things that are, they are, are yeah. Ugh, then it they just, just enrages pull away. them. Yeah, then they just pull away and they just go, yeah, middle finger to the vax vaccine when probably it would be good for most people. For to some get people, it. yeah, yeah, you know. And so that's I think that's the problem is that by making everything black and white, it's just as this adversarial. But it seems thing. to be true about every big topic we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. You know, gender, yeah. abortion, like all these super inflammatory topics, yeah. right? Like I get the emotional response to them, but the the answer isn't don't talk about them. Mm-hmm. Because then I've been thinking about this too, that when the people who are most reactive and most likely to cancel people, not from a healthy place, mm-hmm. are in charge of what gets discussed, then actually what gets discussed is determined by the people with the lowest capacity for discourse. Mm -hmm. So then what we witness, which is maybe 0.1% of opinions on either end or 0.5 or whatever, it's like what we're witnessing is not actually representative of how we all feel. Yeah. And so we feel like, oh, well, I either have to be that or I have to be that. Well, I I don't identify with any of those. Mm -hmm. Like, can I... It's kind of interesting in the conversation of gender because there is this dialogue about all the space between Mm -hmm. for people who are having a challenge with how they might identify from gender. But anyone who wants to say, I'm actually this or these exist too, there is a lot of pushback. So I'm very fascinated by, I don't know what the fucking answer is to any of this, but it isn't silence. And I think the internet amplifies extremes and maybe makes the average person believe that some of the views that might be less common are actually way more common than they are. And, um, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting, right? Because when you, when you censor good ideas and that even being, sorry, when you censor opposing ideas Mm -hmm. and even that being included with self-censorship, 
Yeah. You actually give the illusion of consensus. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in that space right now where there is an illusion that consensus is this or it's that. Like for in journalism, <laughs> I'm not setting you up for a total fucking grenade here. <laughs> is the I might be. You might be like pull's uh, pin. Yeah, pull his pin. Just catch this, Michael. It's not a big deal. Um in Canada, we don't have like a Fox News. Mm-hmm. We have one called Rebel News, and I would say they're very biased towards, they're kind of like a Fox, actually. Okay. But they don't have a television channel. Mm-hmm. They are just online. In Canada, all our other media are pretty left skewed, and a lot of them get funding from the government, so yeah. that immediately causes you know bias. It's mm-hmm. just going to. I'm curious, is our experience of media and journalism, do they tend to skew towards the left and towards the Democrats in the U.S.? In the 1960s, you had um, a lot of money came into journalism. Corporations started getting into media. And so you could make a decent living from it. So what you started having is that you had a lot of um, people from generally very liberal um, academic institutions start to take jobs in journalism. Now, before all of this, journalism was considered a blue-collar job. It was like, really, you know, plumber, mechanic, Journalism. Journalists were, much like myself, drinkers who just like to sit in a bar and write. <laughs> so that, was, that was what we Charles were. Charles Bukowski yes. style. Yeah. So once you get this influx of money, you start pulling – journalism starts getting a lot more people from sort of these elite institutions that are generally tend to have graduates who lean more left than the that average person. Sense. Yeah. So once that starts coming into media, I think you do start to see a tipping of media becoming more left-leaning. So this tips over time and over time and over time. It kind of just starts to move the ball more left and left. And in, I can't remember the exact year. I want to say it was in the 80s. Ronald Reagan killed this bill called the Fairness Doctrine. And so the Fairness Doctrine basically said any broadcast, radio, or television, if you were presenting one view, you had to present another view. Okay, so if you're having brilliant. if you're having a person from the, the left on, you got to have the person from the right on too. And so he ends that. And Good job, Ronnie. What ends up happening is you get Rush Limbaugh comes in, and he goes, "What I'm hearing from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times from the, sort of these like big media institutions doesn't really jive with what I'm hearing from a lot of the middle of the country." So he starts this radio show, and it's three hours long, and it's just him, like being Rush, like. Very right wing, right? Because now he he doesn't have the law holding him back, and so I think this oh, is this is the start the of side. when you start to see like there was a recognition that was true that sort of mass media, especially in you know like the newspapers and everything, was starting to lean more leftward. So you had someone come in and point this out and provide people with more right leaning media, and it took off because he was absolutely pointing out something true. Now you start to get these like pulling of the sides of the country becomes more polarized media media wise. Right. And I think right now we're in a space where social media, the election from 2016 combined with social media, combined with other social forces combined with COVID has like put us in this place where the traditional like mass media is farther left than it's ever been. And the more right leaning media is farther right than it's ever been. Yeah. You know? That's interesting, like yeah. the same polarization we're talking about, the same binary. It's, if you think about like this diverging road, it's like kind of started in the 80s and it's just gotten farther, you know, over time. And there's like historical precedents for this. It seems like the rise of independent media seems to be trying to fill 
Not always, but because often yeah. it's the far left, far right. Yeah. Even being more amplified and more isolated, more echo chambery, mm-hmm. you know, versus there is this rise of, and maybe I'm I'm wrong in my experience of like the free press by Barry Weiss. Mm-hmm. That feels central ish for me. I would have. It's weird because even knowing this from a reflect self reflection perspective, I would have never thought being curious or trying to criticize what would be left media would be considered like to just be curious about things like mm-hmm. the vaccine or policy or is actually right wing like that. Yeah. But I would imagine that it's probably considered just right leaning of center. Yeah, I would say so. And but she would have been a formerly very left leaning writer, wouldn't she? At the New York Times. She was at the Wall Street Journal. Our Wall Street um, Journal. I can't remember where she started. She was at the Wall Street Journal. Then she went over to the Times where she was slightly right-leaning for the Times. Oh, for and, the Times, yeah. And she wrote that famous exit letter. I can't remember the details of it. All I know is that it had this line that just hit the nail on the head, and that's that Twitter has become the ultimate editor of the New York Times, where a lot of New York Times writers, they are writing for a Twitter audience. It's the people that follow them and the people they follow. And that sort of created this echo chamber uh, where people write for this audience of Twitter that to is get more likes. That to is get more. different than the rest of the country. Like it's different. I'll give you an example of like how this plays out in a smaller way. So when I worked at Men's Health Magazine, our competitors were Esquire, GQ, and Men's Journal, basically. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember Men's Journal. So if you combine those three, and they were all based out of Manhattan, if you combine those three, they maybe had like. Their print circulation was maybe like a million and a half or two million. I might be getting the stats wrong. But long story short is that men's health worldwide circulation was 60 million freaking people. We dwarfed all those other magazines. And so you ask yourself, okay, well, why is that? One of the main reasons, I think, is because we're producing a magazine for the entire country, like the entire country. And the editors that worked in... Esquire and GQ and Men's Journal, they're in, the, they're in New York City. That's a very different life than most of the rest of the country lives. That right? was true of my experience of the different, like I never subscribed to GQ or Esquire, but I did to Men's Health. Yeah. So Men's Health was centered in Pennsylvania, the small town. And the editors lived normal ass lives. So what tends to happen is that you're exposed to like, a viewpoint is that that is very much a mix of America. You're doing things that like the vast majority of Americans are doing because most people live, you know, in between the coasts and they live in suburbs and whatever. Like New York is a very insular environment. So I even think this is a long way of getting to the point that even living in this bubble of New York City, you live a life that is very different than the average American. And I think that that ends up altering what goes out to readers in a way that it's just dissociated from the normal person's life. You mm-hmm. know? That makes sense. Yeah. And you don't even know that you don't know. You don't know you don't know. Because you're in the echo chamber. Yeah. Of, which we were talking about, I think it was before we hit record, but it was like formally you got the newspaper and the newspaper had diverse thoughts, Yeah, you know, technically, I, I guess ideally. And you couldn't choose what came in your newspaper. Right. But now you can choose where you get news. And yeah. you can choose... Of course, humans want to validate their perspectives. That makes Mm -hmm. absolute psychological sense. It's much more stabilizing psychologically. We've also spent a lot of time destabilized, you know, recently in Mm -hmm. the last three years, especially. So it's like we want some semblance to 
safety, but it's the illusion of safety. You know, it's much like like just because your ideas are validated doesn't mean they're right. right. You know, and I yeah, it just occurs to me that this inability to be with other diverse ideas is making us more rigid. And and if we're afraid our ideas are wrong, we're going to be more rigid. Yeah, you know, especially if it means that all of a sudden, if my identity—and this has been a lot of my—I don't care whether people got vaccinated. My problem was the psychology and the language they were using to confer compliance. Mm. Do the right thing, which means there's a wrong thing, mm-hmm. and the wrong thing is not the thing they want you to get done. Have each other's backs. Don't be selfish. You know, like all this shame-based belonging language. I don't think there is an ethical line of what you're allowed to do. And I I can't be the only one who believes this, but I think there was a massive violation of the ethical lines. And that was shown in the UK for sure. Yeah. And we're starting to get the data, mm-hmm. you know, now. But, you know, public health and governments and media know how to use psychological techniques to change behavior. I mean, that's yeah. propaganda is as old as time. Public health uses nudge tactics, which is really propaganda. Mm-hmm. You know, just psychological hooks that yeah. create uh, emotion. And, you know, I think it, that's the, like when and we... part of it, and part yeah, of it too, on. is determined by us. I mean, like, the media doesn't make anyone click. What rises to the top is what we click on. That's interesting. You know, I can So there's a self-responsibility. Yeah, I can yeah. run all kinds of stories, but the reality is is that if no one clicks them, I'm going out of business. My business as a media person is determined by what the reader wants and what resonates with them. So I can give them more information, but ultimately like what gets pushed to the top is what we pay attention the to. The most amplifying. Yeah. At the same time, now because we're able to media organizations can go, "Oh, well this story got a million clicks and this one got a hundred thousand clicks. Well, what's, you know, in the past it was like, I don't know how, like how long a person read the paper newspaper. Right. Now with that, you can go, okay, well we got to do more like that. And what tends to grab people's attention is stuff that has um, a level of drama, outrage, lurid stuff. The stuff that basically is like drama that you see online. So this is why like more than 90% of news is negative because that tends to be what we click. And so then when we click and we give a media organization our vote, they're like, okay, well, we know we need to run sort of more of that. So it's this kind of like feedback mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. But if all of a sudden everyone, if we all just decided, I'm only clicking positive stuff. I'm only clicking stuff that is down the middle, that links out to studies, that gives me all the perspectives I need, all the gnarly shit would fade away. That's true. Because you got to pay the bills, right? Mm. So you're starting to see people do that, and they are getting clicks. I think that, you know, there's even an example would be like that SEMA4 newsletter. They give one perspective, they give like the left perspective, the right perspective, and then they kind of put some context on it. I think I've seen that one. Yeah. The, the one that shows up on where it has like the red, blue, and like yeah, it shows so. the tip news is really cool. Um, Rob Herring, who's a documentary oh, okay. creator, he created uh, The Need to Grow. I know they started one called Tip News and it's just facts. Mm. So there's like, it's a daily yeah. newsletter and it's like top stories, but they're not opinions. They're not framed. They're just, here's the information. X happened. Yeah. Which I think we crave that because, man, mm-hmm. like what we need less of is division and polarization. And But the only way through that, or I guess one of the ways through that, is we have to build bridges to one another. You know, we have to. And I find that too, and I, I don't know, like I would get want to get your opinion on this, but 
when you actually sit down and have a conversation with people, most people are totally reasonable. A hundred percent. Like the internet makes you think like, oh my God, if I, if I say the word Donald Trump by anyone that I don't know, like on a very close level, like I'm just opening a whole can of worms and like, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think when you spend the time being curious about what makes people, yeah, what makes someone like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or in Canada, Justin Trudeau or, mm-hmm. or Pierre Poilievier, you know, it's like what makes, what they appeal to. It's like just hating that someone has an appeal or a political view. It totally dismisses whatever their emotional need is that actually makes, you know, I, I think yeah. Trump really appealed to something that people were desperate for. Yeah. You know, and And instead just being like, they're all bad. Yeah. It's like, no, they have like a deep emotional psychological need that he tapped into. They felt forgotten about. Right. You know, all of it, it served also a lot of polarization and Mm -hmm. amplification. And, you know, in Canada, the last election was really ran on a very polarizing wedge issue. Mm -hmm. And that divide, although you might win, the cost of that is to the people, it's to families, it's to communities. I know people who stop talking to someone because they voted for Donald Trump. It's usually, you know, when you look at the data on like colleges, people who identify as Democratic were less likely to desire to share a college dorm with a Republican, Mm. but Republicans (laughs) were more okay sharing it, which I thought that's really interesting. Yeah, And I think that shows just how politics, the intolerance that has come from a side that I normally would have identified because there was such a desire to increase tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I feel sometimes like I'm taking crazy pills that I'm like, oh my God, yeah. is this like, is there something wrong with me or is this actually something that is occurring and I just don't, I don't, it hasn't, yeah. I haven't found my way through it That's yet. Interesting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it might even be like what is popular where we are, where you are. Cause I have a friend who is a, um, he's a friend I went to high school with, stayed in touch with them. He's like this PhD wildlife dude, super cool, smart guy. And he, as a side hobby, because he's like super into physics, he builds these like nice custom rifles. And he built this guy this rifle and he's like delivering it. And the guy like goes to his house. He got some cue that like, I think the kid, I think my friend was wearing a Patagonia jacket. And he's like, who did you vote for? (laughs) Who did you vote? I mean, this guy is dead serious. Like, who did you vote for? why are you wearing that Patagonia jacket? <laughs> like dead serious. And my friend was just like, dude, I'm not telling you who I voted for. Like, it does, do it's not think? relevant. Yeah. And so there are people like that. It's not to say those <laughs> yeah, people yeah. don't exist. They're on both sides. But I do think that most people most of the time are pretty reasonable. And yeah. like, the reality is, it's like, it just doesn't freaking come up that much unless you bring it up, you know. So, All of us want to feel understood, witnessed, have someone take the time to mm-hmm. like listen you know, and, and to, in order to listen to, you know, coming back to, you know, the, the topic, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's really all an invitation. Can we sit with the discomfort of different perspectives? Yeah. Which we're going to grow. And you talk about this, like, in order for an organism to thrive, it has to go through stress. Yeah, totally. And this is such a beautiful invitation that, that you have in this book of, like, we have to be willing to be stressed even about political differences. Like those are all mm-hmm. elements of initiations, really. Yeah, totally. And you know, I just think about like how much broaden our experience is when we welcome in and, you know, invite in the complexity of someone else's because it broadens ours. We're only made richer. I agree. You know? We don't all have to go to the Arctic though. 
Yeah, you don't have to. And I think it's looking at like where in my life am I avoiding the uncomfortable things? Now that could be physical, that could be exercise, that could be like, oh my God, I can't stand being hungry for two seconds. That could be, I haven't been in silence for five years because it makes me uncomfortable. Could be a lot of what you work on. Like, can I have an open conversation with someone? Mm -hmm. Right. There's all these things like, and people can get really good at kind of embracing one form of discomfort while totally ignoring another form. So I think it's kind of like you got to spread it evenly and be like, what am I, you know, what am I trying to avoid here? All right. Well, in the interest of time, because damn, well done. I love it. Very good talk. (laughs) Um, I could go on and on just picking your brain and your perspectives. Where could people find more of you? I'm guessing they, they can get the book wherever you buy books. I got a weekly newsletter. Um, you can find it on my website. That is eastermichael.com. I publish a lot of like interesting kind of short ideas that deal with the book, like extensions of it, and sometimes some wild photos from the Arctic people like. So yeah, I'm there at eastermichael.com, and that's probably the best place. Okay, perfect. Thanks yeah. so much, sir. Appreciate yeah, thank it. you. 